we'll just do what we can because I know it's going to be wonderful no matter what, okay? Okay. Okay, so let me see here. So here's my beginning. You ready for my beginning? Oh, I'm ready. Okay. Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, an interview with Carol Lynn Pearson. I'm so excited tonight to have Carolyn Pearson on the phone. She's decided that she would go ahead and join us for an interview, which I'm really honored by, and she's joining us through Zoom. Carolyn, how are you? I am really well, very, very well, thank you, and may you be well, too, and may all the listeners be well. Well, thank you. Uh, before we started the recording, you had mentioned to me that you were wearing a very special t-shirt today, and we're somewhat <laughs> disappointed that this is only audio and not video as well. Can you tell us about that t-shirt? Oh, well, yes. I grabbed one of my favorite t-shirts thinking that you would just really enjoy it as much as I do. Um, it says, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's true. In your case, it's true. If I had a similar t-shirt, it would probably be, I am my ancestors' worst nightmare. <laughs> well, that works too, you know. But as my mother used to tell me, in this life, you can either be a good example, or a horrible warning. And that's why we fought the war in heaven, you know. So we yes. can make those desperately bad choices. <laughs> we are going to talk about that tonight, especially with my turn on earth. But, you know, I've got to tell you up front, I'm a huge fan of you, Carol Lynn. And so I'm very that's, nervous. Yeah. That's good news. Huge fan. And I know a lot of people, my listeners especially, who are huge fans of you. Although I have to admit that there was at least one person, because I solicited questions that they might want me to ask you, which we might get to hopefully by the end of this interview, uh, who said, uh, excuse me for my being dumb and naive, but who's Carolyn Pearson? Oh, yeah. And so another, this is a young fellow. This is oh, one of these whippers. I, I know that the, the younger generation is just so deprived. Yes, the rising generation who are not around to hear the words of King Benjamin. <laughs> I know. Oh, it's so sad. <laughs> but another of my listeners said, hey, pal, she is a member of the church, and she's famous enough to have her own Wikipedia page. And then she provided the link for him so he could bone up on it. Oh, well, yeah, that, that, that's true. Because I was going to say that you are a person who needs no introduction, and I think that that's true by and large. You are a person who needs no introduction. And I refer to you as the Poet Laureate of Mormonism. Okay, okay. Have you ever been called that before? And, um, oh, sort of. Yeah, I'm, well, there is one way that I'm, I'm very much like Emily Dickinson. I just kind of hide away. I'm very much a recluse like she was. I sit here, but unlike her, I just write very inferior poetry. Oh, I don't know about that at all. I did catch one place in your book, uh, The Ghost of Polygamy, which we'll get to, where you gave a nod to Emily Dickinson, where you talked about telling the truth, but telling it slant. Mm -hmm. Except you said in the church about polygamy, we don't tell the truth and we don't even tell it slant. Yeah, we just lie. <laughs> we, we are going to get to that. Absolutely. Um, I do want to say that we have so much in common, not only membership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, not only similar feelings about certain social issues, but also the theater. I was a dance major at the University of Texas at Austin oh, in the early 1980s. That will be still my heart. 
<laughs> and I was very involved in musical theater, both in the uh, college and outside the college, in the community as well. And I am going to bet you right now that I am the only Mormon missionary, or at least elder, in the history of Mormon missionaries at the MTC who had a big poster of Mikhail Barishnikov up on the wall of his dorm. Oh. <laughs> well, that, that would have been a, a great sign that, that you were artistic. Some would have taken it as the great sign that you're gay, uh, but we're not going to even assume anything about that. I don't know how my companion felt about it, but actually nobody seemed to have brought it up. They just thought, well, you know, that's me. Uh, but I wanted you to know that because you you got your master's degree. Was it in theater arts? Yep, theater. In yep. theater at BYU? Yep. Yes, you went on to get a master's degree. I just got my undergraduate degree, my BA with a master, or excuse me, with a major in dance. And then I, I went on to law school. I went to the dark side. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, no, I did. I, I studied theater. I had a great experience. Uh, good professors, and that's where that's where I found my friends, my people. My people were the theater people. What was and, it about them that appealed oh, to you? It was just so great. And I was in wonderful plays. I actually got the Best Actress Award twice. Two years well, in a row, right? Oh, yeah. See, I've been studying uh, up on you. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so, so tell me, for what special role that I've been playing all the rest of my life did I get a BYU Best Actress Award, quick. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I could pull it up on Wikipedia, but I don't have to. Wikipedia knows nothing about me. Just, you know, a few little teeny tiny meaningless details. No, the, the, my best role at BYU that I've been trying to live up to all the rest of my life is, ta-da, playing Joan of Arc on the oh. stage at BYU Joseph Smith Auditorium. Well, that's a pretty big part, isn't it? That changed. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. And you come to a bad end at the end of the play? Uh, you, you could call it a bad end. What would you call it? it, it um, a very, very, very bad end. <laughs> that, that after hundreds and hundreds of years, well, see, only, only a few weeks ago did the Pope... Uh, no, excuse me. A hundred years ago was the the date that the Pope finally made Joan of Arc a saint. After throwing her to the fire uh, and all those centuries passing, she finally was was made a saint. So you see, sometimes terrible, terrible things lead to good things. Right. It's like uh, uh, what the Sound of Music. Whenever. God closes a door, he opens a window. Right. You have to have a mother abbess to help it. <laughs> <laughs> and climb every mountain. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's that's great. But you've been playing that role now for the rest of your life, you're saying? Yeah, and sometimes I have said, you know, that was the brethren's first mistake with me, letting me play Joan of Arc at BYU. <laughs> when you say playing that role in the rest of your life, what do you mean by that? Well, just that... And for anybody who is on Facebook, I, I do occasionally send out um, a, a post. I'm not a, an, on a personal Facebook page, but I had to move to a professional Facebook page. But I, I put out um, one, and I showed two photographs of me as Joan of Arc on the BYU stage. 
and commemorating the Joan and everything she has meant to me and should mean to all of us. And to me, Joan means just listening to your own voices no matter what. And of course, that was the, that was the major deal with her and the, the, the Catholic uh, the leaders and the English that, um, that she insisted that she was receiving messages from her saints, St. Saint Catherine, St. Margaret, St. Michael. And they said, no, 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 you're just a little girl. You don't receive messages from God. So the, that, the, the idea that I and all of us, every single one of us, has our inner capacity to receive messages from God and that we violate our eternal soul when we give up our own navigational system and our own antenna that that lets us receive direct see i don't get big revelations i, I would never never claim that but uh there's always we all of us have this little voice inside that says yes this this feels good you you must go in this direction or no you cannot do that and, and that's the that's the voice that we need to listen to. That's what Joan means to me. And this is how you have attempted to live your entire life, correct? Yes, imperfectly. But, um, but that's, that's my goal. Can you tell us about one experience that you've had listening to your voice and following it, maybe when it wasn't the most popular thing to do or the thing you wanted to do? Um, a book that I wrote, well, that was published about four years ago, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, I, I just began to feel so agitated about that horrendous subject. And all my life that has haunted me as one of the worst things that ever came out of Latter-day Saint history and present, and um, plans for the future, for eternity. And it just, well, see, I, I was born into women's issues, and then I married into gay issues. And I, I, I found a few years ago that I, I was called, I was called by life to address this terrible subject of LDS polygamy. And... By that time, I felt that I felt that I had given up my all opportunities for excommunication because uh, I had been pushing the the borders of this and that, and and as at, the unusual thing is that I have continued to be very much loved in my ward, loved in my stake, and have had close relationships with many bishops and with with particularly with one or two stake presidents. So I, I, I knew that, that nobody was going to want to come after me. And I, and I made a very good choice of, of sharing that information with my then state president. And, well, actually, when I, I contacted him and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be writing something on, on Mormon polygamy. It's going to be pretty radical. 
I said, do you want to know about it or would you, would it be better for you um, not to know anything? So, oh, I, I want to know. So I, we set up a, a date and then I said, um, listen, I would like your two counselors to be there. And uh, he said, yes, I will invite them. Yes, they, they want to. And then, and then I said, I would like you to invite all three of your wives to come. And they wanted to come too. So we had this fabulous three-hour meeting at the home of one of the counselors where I told them all about what I was going to do. And by that time, I had done the survey that brought in these thousands of responses of how Mormon women and men acted, for a formerly Mormon, um, how they were, were feeling about the concept of eternal polygamy. And it was, it was a wonderful evening, and nobody uh, tried to dissuade me. Some gave their own bad stories. So I, I have been very, I think, um, what would that word be? Just, op well, open and generous about not hiding what I'm doing. And that seems to be very disarming. But... Um, I, I didn't know how Salt Lake City would would handle that. <clears throat> but I knew that this is what I had to do. And I tried for some time to, to get a, a, an agent because I thought this subject was uh, interesting for people beyond Mormondom. You know, like, like we're interested in, in the, 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 how their religion impacts um, Muslim women. I thought people would know, would like to know some of the anguishes that LDS women go through, but I, I that was not to happen, and so I, I self-published through Amazon, and uh, I, I was I loved writing that book. It's it's a it's a difficult animal to describe. It's 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 very much I mean, the history that's in it is very accurate. The, the, the terrible, wonderful, awful stories that people shared with me of what the idea, the, the, the pro proposition of eternal polygamy does to their marriages, does to their self-esteem, does to their feelings about God. Those stories are in it, but also my own personal thread is in it of, of how that has affected me my entire life. And, and the joy of giving up the concept that that even came from God in the first place. And the most radical thing I say in the book is that my, my strong belief that this was, a, this was Joseph's worst error. And we know that he made errors. And this, I believe, was the worst one. The title of the book, and by the way, I have actually read this book through. I think you know that. And I did a review of the book uh, on a blog Four years ago, it was December of 2016, I went back and, and looked it up. I was very impressed by the book. The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, the title itself seems to suggest that polygamy in the LDS Church is not something that's dead and buried in the past, but still its ghost haunts us today. Was that the main thrust of your book? Oh, yes. Yes. And the subtitle of the book is A Haunting the Hearts and Heaven of Mormon Women and Men which it does. And I have received lots and lots of responses from women and men just thanking me for lifting from, and these are people, many of them, who want to stay in the church. 
but this is an issue that, that makes it impossible to be comfortable in the church. And a lot of people have thanked me for giving them <laughs> for giving them a way to stay in the church by throwing out this damnable doctrine. I want to go through a few things in your book with some questions for you and to read some excerpts and get your comments on them. But uh, you mentioned you were wondering what the response would be from Salt Lake City when it was published. What was that response? Well, <laughs> um, nothing that came to me. Uh, I, I sent, I signed a copy for each of the uh, top general authorities and along with this, a copy signed to each wife by her name. And I signed a copy to all the women leaders, uh, presiding bishopric, um, about, what, about 50 people in the Salt Lake, and sent it to them, and knowing that I would not receive any response, but I needed to have them have this material if it would, could possibly be of any good to them. Um, when you say you receive no response, does that mean not even a thank you? Oh yeah, no, 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 thank you, no, nothing. I, I, but but I anticipated that. There's, they just, I don't know if it's a written document or just an understood thing that says, be careful not to respond to anything controversial that would open a door to any, anything troublesome. I, I don't know, but but I, I I did not expect any any response at all. Not even, but, thank but, you for the thoughtful gift. No. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem very controversial, just that much. And it was signed uh, in appreciation and with the hope that you will help lead us to a future that is truly post-polygamous. Um, but here's one thing I do know. <clears throat> that um, sometime later, the Quorum of the Twelve had a BYU professor that they trusted to come in and um, give them a report on this new book on polygamy by Carolyn Pearson. And uh, so I, I know that for the length of their, whatever long that meeting was, that they were focused on this very disturbing subject. And, and all I know is that um, the gentleman speaking sort of left it that it was their fault that this terrible subject continues to cause such, such anguish for so many members of the church today. So uh, as, as far as my influence to the brethren, that's, that's the extent of it. But but I'm pleased to have had that because it's it's now in many of their minds, and we know that nothing is going to change, um, probably for a very long time about that subject. Particularly, you know, our our, our two top gentlemen are now dedicated eternal polygamists. Well, they are. And so you're talking about President Dallin H. Oaks, first counselor in the first presidency, and President Russell M. Nelson, correct? Uh, correct. And uh, see, I'm, I'm very careful about trying to, to stay in my own business. And, and their, their business about how they handle that is totally their business. And my business is to do what is my business, which is to show the incredible pain uh, that is still so much 
uh, imprinted in the psyches, the spirits, the marriages, the self-esteem, the everything of, of Mormon women because of this. And, and, and for the, the way that it messes up men's minds as well. So I, I simply did what I had to do, and that's it. And, and I'm, the, the responses that I've received are, are I've only been chastised about two or three times um, by anybody writing me, but I have maybe a hundred responses of uh, people who, who thank me. And, you know, thank me for, um, for letting them maintain their, their relationship with Joseph, because I, I sort of went out of my way, but, but not, not in a way that was not uh, truthful to, to paint Joseph as the, the, the strong and very often good, kind, compassionate person that, that he was. And I, I did not want to make it a one-sided thing. I, I wanted to draw him in, in his completeness. Right. I remember writing the review, and in fact, I have it in front of me right now. I wrote this line, and in the final chapter of your book, you give a stirring homage or homage, homage to Joseph Smith, relating his final hours with the best of history and poetry combined. And here is where you make me understand why it is that you love Joseph in spite of his errors. And dare I say it, you make me love him too. Okay. Okay. Well, wouldn't it be good if we could love everybody for, the, for whatever good things they have to offer? And, and then just kind of let the rest go. Deal with it if it's, to the extent that it's harmful. Deal with it. And do what we can to work against the harm that we see happening. And then just go around forgiving people. Carolyn, can I ask you, there was a certain line that you used, which I understand was a quotation from an earlier poet about wheat and chaff in this regard. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Do you have it in front of you? I don't. But it had to do with talking about Joseph Smith in particular, though the principle is more general, about taking the wheat and the chaff that is Joseph Smith and his life and his teachings. Right. And if, if you want me to, I'll take a moment to find it. But Okay, go ahead. Okay, here it is. <clears throat> and this is in the chapter, The Why of Mormon Polygamy. And this is the end of that chapter. And now I wonder, those who have lived very large lives, who have left legacies beyond their deaths, do they continue to feel both the positive and the negative effects those legacies have on those who are now taking their own turn on earth? None of us wants to be remembered for our errors. None of us wants to see hurt and know that it has come from our actions. I believe that seeing Joseph's polygamy as an error is the kindest way to evaluate it and the surest way to correct it. Brother Joseph said that friendship is a, quote, grand fundamental principle of Mormonism. True friendship, I believe, is described in that lovely thought I have read more than once from writer Dinah Craik, who lived in England during Joseph Smith's lifetime. 
And I'm quoting from her. Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out, just as they are, chaff and grain together. Certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and then, with the breath of kindness, blow the rest away. I count myself as a friend to Brother Joseph, and I wish to honor him like that. I hold the fullness of his life in the palm of my hand, chaff and grain together. I keep the many kernels worth keeping, and with the breath of kindness, blow the rest away. That's the one. And I yes. know that you've quoted it on prior interviews that I listened to. And perhaps that statement, more than anything else, has stuck in my memory. It's a lovely uh, image, isn't it? It is. Now, if it's okay with you, I would like to read to you, well, your book, but several statements that are found on different pages of your book. And I just want to read these all together. I put them all together in my review. And I just want to allow you to comment on any of them that you see fit. So I'm reading you to you, okay? <laughs> Great, that's easy. <laughs> okay, so this is part of my, uh, my review where I, I actually addressed it to you as sort of an open letter. You make several statements in your book seeking for a way to deal with the fact that polygamy was instituted by Joseph Smith and yet find a way to continue to accept Joseph as a prophet of God though one capable of error, even egregious error. And that's me. Now I quote you. I believe that seeing Joseph's polygamy as an error is the kindest way to evaluate it and the surest way to correct it. You then go on to say, that's page 70 in case you need the reference to your own book. You say, <laughs> you say of Joseph, I love him with a heart that he broke a long time ago. Yeah. That's breathtakingly beautiful. Could you elaborate on that? Mm. Well, of course, like, like everyone who grows up in the LDS church, I was conditioned, invited, inspired to love this founder. And he, he was given really inordinate power. In a lot of ways, he was given a higher pedestal than Jesus was. And, <clears throat> but uh, of course, just having him so central in everything just automatically required that we relate to him. And because everybody else is relating to him so positively, that's, that's what we do. <clears throat> And and then we we come to a time where where that that single minded adoration does not work anymore. And it was it was very challenging, very very challenging for me. But but really liberating. 
You know, today people talk about their faith crises as something that just destroys them. They can no longer have any concept of God. They can no longer even look at any big thing called scripture. Uh, everything, everything washes out with this terrible flood that, that brought in their faith crisis. Well, I had what I see now as a really excellent faith crisis a long, long, long time ago. And I, as I, in, in that book, I think I kind of um, pinpointed around the, the, the time when my marriage fell apart. And I had to pick up every little piece of that and examine it. Every, every piece of everything, everything about the church, everything about God, everything was in, just in fragments on the floor. And I had to pick up each one and look at them. And I believe I say there when I, and, and I had to evaluate them and say, is this piece worthy of keeping? Or is this piece going to go out with the garbage? And, and, and many things just went out because they did not serve. Um, but the, the, the things that, that clearly still had value, I was able to create a new, a new house of belief, a new house of, of some kind of godliness about it. But clearly when I picked up the piece called polygamy, I just smiled this big smile and threw it as far as I could throw it. And the joy of that, the joy of being able to review every single thing I had ever been taught and be the one who says, yes, I keep this. No, I don't keep that. That was just so exhilarating. And... So I, I I wish that everybody who drops out of who well, who drops out of the church and or, or rearranges their belief system could do it in a way that feels joyful. Oh, I don't I don't have to hang on to this polygamy thing. Oh. That's just too good to be true. Throw it away. Oh, I don't have to hang on to the concept that even though I'm a good person, I'm a second-class citizen because I'm female and I will be eternally. Oh, throw that one out. Throw out the, the, the whole idea that, that, that God himself is not God herself as much as himself. Uh, all, all of those things... I, I was able to joyfully reconfigure or throw away altogether. I am listening to you. And I want to tell you that when you're saying that, that reminds me of the words of one of my favorite prophets, Walt Whitman. By the way, I have a very strange faith journey, and uh, I'm not here to talk about it. I've got like 182 episodes already under my belt, in which I expatiate on that at no end. But the this, this strange faith journey that I've been in, has uh, led me not to restrict or discard my view of Scripture or the books that I consider Scripture, but instead to expand it greatly to include many, many other books and many, many other mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Right. So, so what if our faith journey, uh, for all of us, just made everything about this bigger and bigger and bigger 
instead of smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'm throwing it all out with the, the trash now. Yeah. So here's that quote from Walt Whitman. I just looked it up. I don't have it memorized. Reexamine all you have been told in school or church or in any book and dismiss whatever insults your own soul. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Insults your own soul. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Had you heard that one before? No. Uh, well, if I did, it, it, it got lost in my brain cells. Well, you're in step with some of the great poets of forever, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, okay. I'll accept that. <laughs> and then he says, what happens when you do that? Uh, the first part is the most famous part, I think. But then he says, if you dismiss whatever insults your own soul and your very flesh shall be a great poem and have the richest fluency not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes mm -hmm. and, and in every motion and joint of your body. Yeah. Wow. You know, um, when my former husband, Gerald, was dying in my home, um, I read to him Walt Whitman. That was his favorite book. And he, he had marked it up. It was dog-eared everywhere. But he, when he felt that his homosexuality um, had pushed him out of the church that he loved, it was, uh, it was a very devastating thing for him. And, and that's why he began to be such a, a, such a pioneer, such a, a, a journey person to look here and look there. And uh, the new age had just entered our country. And he was just busily devoting himself to the best things of the past, like Walt Whitman and all the new, the new things that were coming in, like curly and photography that could uh, take a photo of your own spiritual aura. I actually know what you're talking about there. I got that reference. Oh, good. Excellent. Excellent. So anyway, um, yeah, Walt Whitman. Yep. So now I... I'm, I want to get to Gerald and that aspect of your life too here in a second, because of course I know what you're talking about because I read your book about the entire story titled goodbye. I love you. A very moving book as well. By the way, if anybody doesn't know, you have been so prolific, my dear, over the past more than 50 years now. Can you believe it? I know, but I know just the tip of the iceberg about what Carolyn Pearson has produced. And then I go on to Wikipedia and also to your own Facebook page, by the way. And I am just astonished by all the things that you have done, all the books that you have written, all the plays that you have written, all the songs you have written, and uh, the, the, the performances you have given. And I am astonished, I've got to tell you that. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I. And I have been fortunate in that all of these things that, that I really have felt called to do is to say that this does have my name on it. 
I, I have to do this. I am the one that needs to do this. I'm very fortunate that, um, that those things, I, I, that I could do it with love and also do it as a way to support my family as a single mother. That's, that's kind of a modern-day miracle that that fell into place that way. Can I tell you something that came to my mind when you were talking about sending a copy, autographed copy of your book, Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, to the general authorities? Sure. That was back in, uh, excuse me, 19, I'm sorry, 2016, correct? Yes. Because here's the deal. We already talked about Elder Oaks and Elder Nelson being the two among the top 15 who are married currently, eternally, to two women, correct? Right. And, you know... I'm sure this caught your attention, but I want to read this for you and you make whatever comments you want to because uh, it's hard for me not to see a connection here. That in October of 2019 General Conference, three years later, after the book was sent by you and received by Elder Dallin H. Oaks, he stood up and he gave a talk which dealt with this issue, though not to my mind very satisfactorily. I want to read to you the first two paragraphs of the talk. By the way, do you know exactly what I'm talking about already, Carolyn? Oh, wait, it was just this just next to the last conference? Yes, October 2019. Oh yes, that was that was unspeakably um, inadequate. Well, let me read this, okay? Just so everybody will know what I'm talking about. I actually did a podcast in which I played the audio tape of this and I made my own commentary, but I really want to hear yours. The very first words out of his mouth. My dear brothers and sisters. A letter I received some time ago. He doesn't say a book I received three years ago, but he does say a letter I received some time ago. Introduces the subject of my talk. The writer was contemplating a temple marriage to a man, so obviously the writer's a woman, to a man whose eternal companion had died, i.e. his first wife had passed away. They were married in the temple. She would be a second wife. She asked this question. So here's this woman writing apparently to an apostle with this question. Would she be able to have her own house in the next life, or would she have to live with her husband and his first wife? I just told her to trust the Lord. And then he gives another uh, example that's somewhat similar to that, but I don't know that I want to read that now. I'd like to get your, your take on that. Were you watching General Conference when this talk was given? I think I wasn't watching at the moment, but I, I did see it. Um, afterwards. Well, didn't he go on to say, don't worry about it. Just yeah. don't worry about it. That's his whole thing right there. I just told her to trust the Lord. And then he gives a second example, which I want to read a little bit quicker here. I continue with an experience I heard from a valued associate, which I share with his permission. After the death of his beloved wife and the mother of his children, a father remarried. I think that's supposed to be, uh, I'm not sure, but I think he's getting remarried. Uh, I got the text from the LDS Church website. That doesn't seem to make sense there. Some grown children strongly objected to the remarriage and sought the counsel of a close relative who was a respected church leader. After hearing the reasons for their objections, which focused on conditions and relationships in the spirit world or in the kingdoms of glory that followed the final judgment, i.e., is dad really going to be married not only to our mother, but also to the second woman, right? This leader said, you are worried about the wrong things. So that's a good way to validate your concerns. You are worried about the wrong things. You should be worried about whether you will go to those places. Concentrate on that 
And if you get there, all of it will be more wonderful than you can imagine. And then he echoes his first uh, comment about how to deal with these questions. What a comforting teaching. Trust in the Lord. Did you find that teaching particularly comforting, Carolyn? Uh, no, no. I seem to have missed out on the comfort of that teaching. Why is it that you don't think it's comforting? And what do you think could be done to make it more so? <laughs> mm. To me, it, um, as Walt Whitman put it so well, it insulted my soul. These feelings that, uh, and, and those in your listening audience who, who m might want to read The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, there's um, over a hundred short excerpts from the responses I got to a survey asking Mormon women and men how they felt about this. And those excerpts will just break your heart. And, and these are all from good, strong LDS people, or used to be, and are still good, awesome human beings. And, and th their feelings deserve to be honored. I, I do not believe that any kind of discourse, any interaction, conversation, anything, is successful when the primary feeling is one of um, mitigation. That it, it, you're, you're, when the person asking the question gets the feeling that the person speaking to them does not value in any way the emotional huge impact that that is having on them. Just, well, just, just don't worry about it. Just leave it to the Lord. Leave it to us. Uh, I, I, I felt it was very dismissive, totally dismissive. And it, it made me sad, 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 sad. Can I tell you, just looking at it analytically, what it presents to my mind, Carolyn? Well, I'll, accept, I'll take that as a yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I, I, I assume that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sitting here with bated breath. So okay, okay. <laughs> no, what it presents to my mind is, first off, that this issue is of such significance and being raised enough in the church that Elder Oaks feels it necessary, or appropriate at least, to talk about it in general conference, but not important enough to actually validate or deal with in any kind of substantive way. Right. I would say that's true, yeah. And, and, and that's sad. I, I just think it's sad. Well, I agree with you, and I still can't help wondering whether you're sending him a signed copy of your book, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, might have played some role in his addressing it in general conference. Well, my sending him that book, I hope that he would have read it, or maybe he gave it to assist an assistant to give, tell me about this, but, but I know that they, they sat in a meeting and, and did discuss it. So... Uh, that certainly was one layer of information that their minds had to uh, um, discuss, acknowledge. But listen, I, I, 
I would bet you anything that every single day there are letters. And, and I, I have received letters from women and, and a couple from men saying, I have written to the general authorities about this. I have wept about this. So I, I know that, uh, that they are not... They are not kept in the dark about what some of the people, many, many of the people in the church are feeling on this. And I would be honored to think that that, that, that my book did, um, did cause some wheels to turn in their minds and maybe in their hearts, because the book is a very compelling document. I agree with that, by the way. And I think that you are a mover and a shaker, and maybe more so than you even know. <laughs> okay, I'll accept that. I want to introduce us to Gerald, if we can turn away from this subject right now. We only have two hours, and we're almost at the end of the first one, and there's so much more I want to talk with you about. We, there's no way we're going to get through the end of it. But by the way, before I go any further, let's talk really quickly about your new book that has just come out. I'll walk with you. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. This is a beautiful little children's picture book. And uh, I'll, I'll quickly give the, the history. Uh, decades ago, when the new hymnal and the new children's songbook were coming out, I received a call from a member of the primary general board saying, Sister Pearson, we, we need you. Uh, we, we, we've got our primary songbook ready to go, but we can't send it to press because we have, uh, there's a song we don't have in it. And it, it's a song about um, including and loving everyone. She said, we have so many beautiful little children who have special needs and we need a song about their value and about including them and, and and we've tried this and that, and nothing has been working for us on that song. So I decided to, to call and see if you'd be willing to write this song for us. Now, see, that was just a, a few years after my first book, Beginnings, came out. And strangely, it just put me on the map and a, a lot of Mormon people. And that was in 1974 that Beginnings came out, right? Uh, no, beginning, Beginnings came out in 1967. I was married in 66. Beginnings came out in 67. Okay, I may have been looking at a subsequent edition. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, so I said, I'll try. And, and I, I worked on it, and I sent it to them, and they loved it, and they gave it to uh, composer Reed Nibley to do music, and... So that's how we came to have the little song in the primary children's song, but called I'll Walk With You. And it has come to be one of the most popular, most loved songs. My, my state president, my former state president now, um, twice asked me to lead a primary, to lead a primary um, chorus in singing I'll Walk With You at state conference when we had two Two, two different times when we had general authorities come to visit because he liked to show me off and <laughs> show the song off. Uh, so I was just thrilled that, that I knew that every Sunday children all over the world would be singing this song. And of course it had a different life. It was 
the, the concept of it was uh, also taken by the LGBTQ community and um, on the, the uh, Love Loud concerts of Dan Reynolds and uh, Tyler Glenn, they, they, they sang it. So the, 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 song, the book, is, the song has had quite a, a history already. So now to shorten this, last year, my publisher at uh, Gibbs Smith Publishing in Layton, Utah, who publishes in the national market, they, um, she wrote and said, listen, I've been thinking, would you consider taking your little primary song and extending it? We have different verses to to make it apply to to different circumstances where people are different. And that, that had never, ever occurred to me. Uh, but I, I knew that in my contract with the church, I, I kept commercial rights to that. So I felt comfortable in moving ahead with this. And uh, so this little book will take me about four minutes to read, and I would like to read it. May I read it, please? Would you please? Yes. By the way, you probably got it in your hand, but I want to tell the audience that last week when we were talking over the phone, you actually pulled this book out, this new book that you have on the market, this children's book, and you read it to me over the phone. And I want to tell you, that's got to be one of the highlights of my life, to have Carolyn Pearson <laughs> performing her new book, her poetry, for me and only me. <laughs> oh, honey, call me every now and then, and I, I just enriched your life. So, <laughs> but, now, but now we'll share it with a wider audience. Please go ahead. And the illustrations here are done by a, a New York artist whom I do not know, Jane Sanders. But this is the book. I'll walk with you. If you don't walk as most people do, wait, I want to sing the very first part of the song to remind people. If you don't walk as most people do, some people walk away from you, but I won't, I won't. If you don't talk as most people do, some people talk and laugh at you, but I won't, I won't. And it has a lovely little uh, enter place there of uh, following Jesus. And then it just goes back to the, the, the little refrain. So uh, that, that was the basis. And here we go. If you don't walk as most people do, some people walk away from you. But I won't. I won't. I'll walk beside and match your stride. That's how I'll show my love for you. If you don't talk as most people do, some people talk and laugh at you. But I won't. I won't. I'll talk with you and giggle too. That's how I'll show my love for you. If you don't look like some people do, some people just look down on you, but I won't, I won't. I will see you're made perfectly. That's how I'll show my love for you. If you're not as young as some are young, some people think you're just no fun, but I won't, I won't. I listen to and learn from you. That's how I'll show my love for you. If you were born far, far away, some people think you should not stay. But I won't. I won't. 
I know you bring such interesting things. That's how I'll show my love for you. If you don't pray as some people pray, some people pray you'll go away. But I won't. I won't. We're all, I see, one family. That's how I'll show my love for you. If you can't buy expensive stuff, some people think you're not good enough. But I won't. I won't. I'll look inside where treasures hide. That's how I'll show my love for you. If you don't love as some people do, some people think your love's not true. But I won't. I won't. I'll watch you share. I'll see you care. That's how I'll show my love for you. If you don't think as some people do, some people have no use for you. But I will. I will. Our thoughts will play and stay all day. That's how I'll show my love for you. I'll walk with you and talk with you. That's how I'll show my love for you. Bravo. Thank you. I know you can't see me, but I'm smiling from ear to ear at this whole thing. That's good. And you know, just coincidentally, this is the exact thing that everybody needs right now, right now, right now. All the divisions. I'm different than you are. You, you have things that are, are unfamiliar to me. And to, to just walk with each other and talk with each other, that's, that has to be the way, if there is a way. And, and I choose to be an optimist. And I choose to believe that all pain can be labor pain. And I'm choosing to believe that today, with all of the, all of the divisions, all the political decisions, all the ethnic decisions, all, all, I, I meant to say divisions, all of the divisions of I think this way and you think that way, uh, those can only be healed by consciously trying to put aside many of the things that divide us and concentrate on the things that, that unite us. And I think it's especially sad when, uh, and I know that many of the listeners here will have had the experience of, because they don't, now think as maybe their family used to think, or maybe maybe I think now differently than my wife used to think, or all of these these possible differences that show up inside families, inside friendship circles, when one person feels called to change the way they view the world, change the way they view heaven change the way they view 
life itself in in how they believe they can benefit by adapting a new path. When when those things happen, it, it's such a shame that the love is lost, the friendships are lost, and it, it just it just should not be that the human connection should be above all else. Doctrine and belief in one way or another should not overwhelm the phenomenon of love that used to exist and still can exist. If we can just walk with each other and talk with each other and, and say, I, I seem not to be able to believe that particular thing, but I'm not going to let that keep me from loving you. That's, that's just what I'm hoping for so many people. Can I tell you a story here, Carolyn? Sure. Thank you, because I'm waiting for your, your saying it's okay. <laughs> Not rhetorical. No, uh, today's date is June 26, 2020. I have no idea who will be listening to this days, weeks, months, even years in the future. So to give a bit of context for what it is that you're talking about, uh, is not just in generalities, but also the fact that the United States of America and even other countries in the world are being racked with massive protests and violence over which really stemmed from the murder of a black man named George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of a white police officer, which is about a month ago now, I think. But uh, it has uh, precipitated and ignited uh, a huge convulsion within the country. Um, and I suppose uh, in the future, people will be able to read it in the history books, but right now it's going on. And I just wanted to tell you, uh, it's been all over the news. It's like 24 seven, it's in the news, what's going on. I am in the Seattle area and you've probably heard about the little six or seven block uh, section of downtown that has now been taken over by some of the protesters and has effectively been ceded to the protesters by the mayor. But the point is, the point is, is that shortly after these riots or protests uh, broke out, it's about a month ago, and it was in Atlanta. And I remember they were showing uh, live film of what was going on in Atlanta. It was at nighttime. There were protesters. There was a police presence, and the police were all in uniform with their riot gear, and they're all in a line. And then the protesters are there, and some of them are very close to the police officers, and some are yelling at them. Well, there was a particular lady that I was watching. She was a black lady. She was yelling at the police officers, and she was right in front of this kind of shorter-than-usual police officer. He wasn't as tall as his fellows, but he's there with his riot gear. And they are pretty close to the camera. You can't actually hear what's going on, but you can definitely see the anger on the side of the protesters and the stoicism and the we are here to protect on the side of the police. And as this was going on, and as some talking head was over here in another box talking about things, I saw this shorter police officer. It's like he dropped his facade and he started talking to this woman like a regular person. And I suddenly saw this woman who had been yelling at him stop yelling and recognize that he was a human being like she was and start talking with him as well. 
And then they just started having a conversation back and forth. And I thought that's the connection that needs to happen. And that's the only thing that will help us get past this. Right. That's beautiful, isn't it? Well, I thought it was. And of course, there's nobody commenting on that. I'm just seeing it as it's happening live. Right. Uh, but there have been occasionally, and on Facebook, some of these, these lovely moments pop up that somebody has caught it where um, and when I, I see a, a, a black man carrying a wounded white um, person who had been yelling and screaming at, at them and, 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 and injured himself. And this, this black protester picked up the, the, the injured white man and took him to safety. Th- those, those are the moments that, that get noticed. You know, all, all of this other stuff, well, I'm sure it's that there is a way in which, and you know, in the, the, the study of, of chaos, the, the chaos theory that, that we have to have chaos to move to a higher order and chaos will happen. And hopefully if we ride it well, it, it moves us to a higher order of things. So as we watch all of the, the, the chaos and every once in a while, here comes a blip of beauty. Let us, let us hope that that, that is the harbinger of better things to come. Let me ask you a question here. This is a bit of a general question, and I'm going away from my outline because something you had said, and this is about your life personally now, because you have gone from the 1970s, perhaps the late 1960s, but really with your book, Beginnings, uh, and then subsequently with your musical, My Turn on Earth, which if Wikipedia is right now, came out, out in 1977. I hope that much is right. But you went from being, uh, if I can put it, a darling of the church and very accepted, very much, in my opinion, a celebrity in the church. I mean, you are one of the very few people in the church who's not a leader of the church and, you know, a woman in the church who is generally recognizable just by your name, Carolyn. And yet you go from that point in the 1970s to now 2016, where you're sending out autographed copies of books to the leadership of the church and not even getting so much as a thank you back. I am sensing here a story arc to your life and wondering if you see the same thing or something different and what it is that you think has caused that. Um, I don't know that I would agree really with how you define the arc. I see the arc as moving from simplicity to complexity and moving from from the safe ground to to doing some pioneering work. You know, my little beginnings, this book of poetry that just was a fluke and just just flew off the shelves all of a sudden when my husband insisted that we publish it. Uh, that that did set me up as a <laughs> a major name for, for many, many people. And it was beautiful stuff. It was very safe stuff. 
uh, it was quoted in conference, in general conference. Uh, I, 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 and then my turn on earth was very safe. Uh, but if we don't individually grow with our own visions, uh, what, what good are more years for? So I would put it that I, I went from the, the, the simple kinds of observations up to the, the more difficult ones. I grew up, as it were, as a human being and as a, a, a thinker, a writer. So, and, and I, I would believe that, that there would be some general authorities who still have some, some great um, esteem for, for my journey. And, and I know that my local authorities have not only, they have not tolerated me, they have appreciated me and utilized me. So I, I, I don't exactly follow the trajectory that, that you laid out there. And to me, it doesn't mean a thing that I didn't hear from them. No, not, not a thing. I, that's, they, they just don't do that, especially for a controversial book. Oh, well... Later on, I did send a copy to one of the, the women leaders who was not, uh, she was not yet in, in um, what's the word? She wasn't given her position uh, on, on, as a member of the presidency of one of the women's organizations. And I, I sent a copy to her saying, you, I, before you were installed, I sent this copy to all of your the other leaders, and I want you to have it. And I also wrote a light, nice letter, and um, and included a couple of the, my more radical poems for this other book that will be coming up right away, which we'll talk about sometime. Mm -hmm. And she wrote back a very, very good, excellent letter thanking me deeply, and um, and acknowledging some of the things that I had said as, as important and things that, that we must be looking at. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm sorry, as a representative of the male species here on the earth, that none of the males wrote you a thank you back, but I'm glad that one of the, the women leaders did. Uh, okay. Now, prior to, prior to the ghost of eternal polygamy, I, I actually did the same thing with my book, No More Goodbyes that uh, gives us the stories of the, the ways in which we are still failing our LGBTQ sisters and brothers in terms of ill-fated marriages and uh, suicide and family alienation. And I tell some really bad, bad, bad stories there. And then some two-thirds of it is the good stories, the good stories of of LDS families letting nothing come between them and their gay and lesbian kids. And, um, and I remember I did receive three responses to that, and one was from somebody in the presiding bishopric, and one was from the Relief Society president, and um, 
just just thanking me and saying that they have appreciated my work on this subject. So it, it's not it's not as black and white, um, dear brother Radio Free Mormon, as, <laughs> as you have suggested there. Okay. And, and I'm listen. I could not be more pleased that that I still have a strong place. And everyone who knows me understand that I'm a complicated member of the church, but I'm a very useful member, and I do not go around uh, telling people to leave because this is all a bunch of crap. Um, I'm I'm very valued in my ward and and in my stake, and I, I don't know if, if you were to interview all the general authorities. There'd be a few who would say, Carolyn Pearson, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they know you. And I want you to know that Radio Free Mormon values you very much. And so do many of my listeners who have made very supportive comments when I announced last week that I would be interviewing you today. Good. Okay. No, I, I am absolutely honored to have the place that I do have. In, in the Mormon community, knowing that I'm kind of a puzzle to some people, but, uh, but that I have a lot of goodwill from, I think, most people who, who are aware of me. I'm grateful for that. You mentioned going from being simple in, in the 1970s to more complicated and being more accepting and safe, I think is what you said, in the 1970s. But, you know, I've been looking a little bit at your lyrics in My Turn on Earth, and I think there were seeds maybe being planted there already that early. And here's what I want to ask you. I know that, according to my research at least, Saturday's Warrior came out in 1973. Lex de Azevedo wrote that. And I think that we all pretty much know the subject matter of it, at least, you know, people who listen to the show, right? about people in the pre-mortal existence making certain commitments and promises and coming down to earth and seeing how it all plays out, right? But then four years later, you team up with Lex Azevedo to write the music, correct? To write your musical, My Turn on Earth, which if looked at superficially, seems to be pretty similar to the same plot line as in Saturday's Warrior. And I want to ask you, because I know Carolyn Pearson well enough to know you're not just going to do a mindless ripoff and do the exact same thing that was done four years ago. What was it that you felt that my oh. turn on earth brought to uh, the story that was different from Saturday's Warrior? Okay, I, I want to back up for just a moment even further. Uh, Lex Azevedo and Carolyn Pearson, uh, well before Saturday's Warrior, wrote a musical that a number of people consider the best Mormon musical that's ever been written, which is called The Order is Love. It, it got its premiere at uh, BYU, and, um, and it got high marks from whatever critics there were. It's the story of the saints struggling to live the United Order in Orderville. It's funny. And it's inspiring. And, and then I did my thing, and Lex did other different kinds of things, and, and um, Doug talked Lex into doing 
this um, Saturday's Warrior thing. And in the meantime, you, you see, but the idea of what in the world are we doing on this earth anyway? I mean, that, that's sort of a central idea that, that everybody owns. Nobody steals that idea from anybody. Uh, and I had been writing, well, what I remember is that I, I had a little children's book that I was writing that, that just simply was the very bare bones of what came to be my turn on earth. And Lex approached me and said, hey, we got to, it's time for us to do another musical. I want to do, I want to do a musical for children. And so I said, well, you know, there's, there's a little outline I have been thinking about for a short book. Let me see if, if, if that is um, weighty enough that I could expand that into something. And, and so it did. And I remember as I jumped into that little tiny story and thought, okay, what, what can I do with this? And believe me, I, I'm not even sure that I had seen Saturday's Warrior at that time. And when I did see Saturday's Warrior, I really did not like it. Um, <laughs> Why didn't you like it? Everybody loved that, but except you, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Uh, so anyway, the, the, the concept that I had had was simply in this little story of teaching what are the major lessons that children need to learn, that, we, that we've all been sent here to, uh, to do something. And, and I had gotten the, the visual idea of having the, the clothesline that, that these things got attached to as uh, children's games. A language that, that little kids understand. So that's how that began. And I, I, just, I just jumped into it and said, okay, we got to start up, start out up here in heaven. And, uh, and the, 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 the main um, point of, uh, of what of, of game the, the the main game that we will hook all of this on is a treasure hunt. And what is what are they hunting for? Well, what's the great what, what did we come here to find? But well, we came here to find love. So I, Car I Caroline, I've got to interrupt you because the answer that comes to my mind is the LDS church. That's what we came here to find. That's what you came here to find. I came, <laughs> here, I, I came here to find the gold of love. Okay. And, and listen, this is not an either or. There's tremendous love within the LDS church. As long as you're a member, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I, I do observe among the LDS people that I know. Uh, as, as we go about our business of trying to take care of each other, 
there's there there is a, a significant love there, and and I'm really so, I am so sorry that that gets just thrown out for many many people once they decide decide to leave. Yes, and Carolyn, by the way, I meant that more as a compliment to you than as a slam to every other member of the LDS Church. I know it came out that way, but that's not how I intended it. Oh, okay, okay, well. Can I ask you this? My turn on earth, is is there, there's reference to Heavenly Mother in there, isn't there? Yes, and I was about to say that that's the most radical thing that I did in, in uh, my turn on earth. And this is the funny part, is that uh, Saturday's Warrior comes out in 1973, and now you're going to do a musical with Lex four years later for children, and yet it's going to have more radical elements in it than Saturday's Warrior did. Um, yeah, yeah. And, but, but see, this, you could go through the entirety of My Turn on Earth and nobody would say, oh, she's teaching false doctrine here. We, we start out in heaven where there is our heavenly father and our heavenly mother, but we didn't call them that. No, wait, wait, wait. We started in this. We started out in this kingdom where there is the king and the queen, but we didn't call them that. We called them father and mother. Mm-hmm. And everybody is ex- it, 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 everyone is every Mormon is fine with the occasional general reference to heavenly mother. Well, sure, of course she's there. But then, I, you know, I as I, I I do have heavenly father and the the plans and the you know Jesus and Satan and. I have a plan. It is better for man. Yeah, yeah, but but Heavenly Mother remains a part of the whole ethos of where the children have been, although it, it's it's Jesus that relates to them with these these little fabulous notes that drop down that they pick up about a, a clue as to where the treasure is, and I think that was very brilliant. If I don't, if I do say so myself. With some historical precedent in the, what, medieval letters from heaven? <laughs> you know more about that than I do. Oh, there were people who said that they were actually letters that dropped down hundreds of years ago that would drop down from heaven out of a cloudless sky with messages written on them from God. I didn't even know that. You were okay. tapping into something there. I was. Yes, I was. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But, in, but of course, in your but, play. But the main interesting point about our Heavenly Mother, is at the very end when little Barbara, who's been our main focus throughout, and she has searched here and there, and she makes mistakes, but she learns to, to repent, and blah, 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 blah. And then toward the and and, and we, we see that, that she marries and has a family, and then all, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we hear this voice, and as I wrote it, I insisted that this be a female voice. And it says, Barbara, time to come home. And of course, that's a little bit chilling because we do understand that she's, her turn on earth is now just about over. Mm-hmm. And we know what that means. But you know, and the voice comes again, and and I insisted that this, and I didn't, Lex didn't uh, 
argue with me at all. And, and it makes sense because, you know, it's our, in, in, in our earthly life, our mother goes out and calls us home, or used to when we were free to rumble around. So, and, and I, I've had people say to me, you know, the very first thought I ever had about a Heavenly Mother was in my turn on earth. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. It is. Can I ask you one other thing? Because I went through some of the lyrics of the songs, and I wanted to ask you about this particular lyric that's from the title song, My Turn on Earth, which I'm sure you know very well since you wrote it. Once again, I'm quoting you back to you. And I just wondered about this because this seemed a little bit uh, interesting to me, and I wondered if you had a special message there the way I took it. Well, never mind just how long you stay, the size or shade of the horse you've got. Just see all the sights and hear all the sounds and feel the sun and you'll learn a lot. The shade of the horse you've got, that struck me as significant, especially uh, in a production from 1977. Was there any special meaning that I should be getting from that like I did? Sure. We're all, well, we're all different colors, too. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting. I'm, I'm hearing skin color in this. Uh-huh. And it's not preachy because it's very subtle. Well, yes, and it's also the year before the priesthood ban was lifted, according to my calendar. And that's what made it happen. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that finally tipped the scales. <laughs> Brother Radio Free Mormon, you. Has anybody else, I'm, I'm sure, now you intended to put that message in there, right? I'm not making this up out of my own head. It was there. Of course it was. It was. Now, who, who else caught this and, and remarked on this to you? Oh, I, I don't remember. Lots no. of people? I, I, I really do not have a memory that that was a big thing. Okay. And it's not. It's just nice. And, you know, it's right in there in the lyrics. It comes and it goes oh. very quickly. It can be taken either way, you know. I, I understand that. Because, of course, the horse being likened unto a horse and a merry-go-round in, within the context of the lyrics of the song. But also I'm hearing it in, in, as the body that we're born into as well. That sure. the horse that yeah, we ride our, is the body we're born into. Our, yeah, our vehicle. Yes. So I just want to let you know, I was doing a little textual analysis of your lyrics, and that stuck out to me. So if that if that was the message you were putting in there, I just want you to know that some decades oh, later, I got it. Oh, good. I also want to tell you that um, I was, just because of how I joined the church. By the way, I joined the church in 1978, just at about the time your personal life was turning upside down. Yeah. But I knew nothing about that. I want to get that to, to that here in a second. But since you've been so kind to sing to me, I want to return the favor <laughs> okay. and sing to you because I knew your songs. See, I wasn't so familiar with your musical. Uh, my friend who baptized me had a record of uh, Saturday's Warrior. And so he'd play those songs all the time and they'd sing them all the time. So I knew those songs better. But there were other songs that I knew and that I learned along the way, including while I was on my mission that were from your show. Um, I think that every single elder that I knew on my mission loved to sing, I have a plan, and they would muster all the evil they could in their little Mormon missionary bodies to sing <laughs> Satan's part. And that's why it's, I have a plan. It is better for man. Yeah, we love doing that. But there was this little variety show that we actually put on for investigators, one time only, and then we got shut down, but it was uh, in the summer of 1981 in Mikunegaoka, Japan. And one of the songs that we ended up singing was, what does it take to make a family? 
from your show, My Turn on Earth. Uh-huh. And can you just sing the first the first line of that? Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you that we didn't sing it in English. We sang it in Japanese. And then I'll sing the first couple lines back to you in Japanese. Oh, gosh. Let me. Uh, that's not what I go around singing all the time. Okay, here we go. Emily. I don't know. You, you go ahead. You sing it. I think it's, what does it take to make a family? One little, is it one little stand when the bumps come along? One little stand when the bumps come along. What does it take to make a family? Do, 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 do. People who sing a song. Is that about it? All right, right. Okay. So I only remember, and I actually remember this. The first part in Japanese was as follows. Did you know this got translated into Japanese? You must have known. Oh, I, I don't remember. And probably a lot of other languages, too. If it got down to Japanese, it must have gone through Spanish and German and French before it got there. But, <laughs> well, I'm just thinking. Uh, Japanese is usually not the top of the list for a Mormon song oh, to get translated awesome. into. That's okay, great. here you go. Okay, ready? Kazo, okay. Kazoku wa nandaro. Nani ni mo dekinai kazoku. Kazoku wa nandaro. Then some more words I can't remember, but something in Japanese. <laughs> so there you go. That's it in Japanese, your own song. That, that's excellent. That tickles me. Well, I hoped it, it would. Just, it, 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 wow, yeah. You know, just the arts are one way. I mean, just simple things, little plays, musical stuff. These are the things that are going to make people realize the the shared humanity boy sometimes i think if we had taken all those billions that we spent after after 9/11 and used those billions for for effective cultural exchange and helping to build non-religious schools and doing all all of those things what what would it have it, it it could have made such a positive difference rather than just jumping into the grabbing grabbing the guns oh you know what just tickled me as i'm remembering japanese um okay a recent book that i read was the biography of General Douglas MacArthur. Hmm. And I didn't know much about that, but my son had read the book and kept telling me about it. And I thought, okay, I'll read it. And I, I, I wish everyone could just read that book. I'm in love with General MacArthur. And he is about the best example you are ever going to find. I don't even know what his religious leanings were. But he, exe- he, he went to Japan to build and not to punish. He went to Japan to create a nation that would never want to go to war again. And uh, he, he exemplified returning good for evil everywhere he went. So that by the time, after five years, when he left that country, there were 300,000 Japanese people lining the streets, weeping and waving goodbye and thanking him. 
I did not know that. I've got to tell you, I got to read this or I've got to see the movie with uh, Gregory Peck, at least. And, and I don't know how the movie would deliver all of these little things that I'm talking about. Yes. Do you know what but, the name of the book is? Do you remember? Yeah, it, it, it's just just amazing. And I, I, I have wondered, you know, we, we're, we're told to return good for evil, love your enemy. And, and I, I think that is, is possible in our private lives and maybe in our little bit of expanded lives. But I wondered, is it, is it even possible to do what Jesus had to do on an international level? And then I read this book and I say, by darn, General MacArthur did that exact thing. And I know he had failures before and after that time, but he had a blessed, he created a blessed five years inside Japan where he worked a miracle. And it was by doing exactly what Jesus said to do, return good for evil. And that, that should be Oh my gosh, I wish everyone could, could grasp how that truly happened. Carolyn, our time is running short. We've got about 24 minutes, and I only say short because I know there's so much I want to talk to you about. I was going to give you another personal anecdote about me that you just reminded me of, but forget about that. This show is about you because I did mention I joined the church in 1978. It was about the time the world was turning upside down. You've alluded to it already and your, your marriage to Gerald. Could you tell our audience, for those of us who don't know, and there's going to be a lot who don't know this story, could you tell us, um, and I hate to try and take something that's so significant and so important and compress it down, but only for time's sake, could you let my audience know about your relationship with Gerald and what happened there? Sure. Um, I fell in love with a gay man, and he fell in love with me. The very best he possibly could love me, he loved me. And we we met at a, during a play at BYU. I had just come back from traveling the world for a year. Gerald had been a, a missionary to Australia. And anyway, um, we, just before... Directly after we became engaged, he told me he had something he had to talk about, and um, he'd been fasting for several days. And he told me that in his past had been homosexual feelings and some experience, but that's not who he really was. He was totally devoted to the church, and and he did love me, and and he did want to marry me, and um, somehow, and I I accepted that. And this was in the 60s, and all we knew back then was what we were taught by the church, that this is just a, a sin. And if you get off the, the correct path, you just repent, and you can get back on the path, and you find a good woman who will love you, and, and that's, that's the end of it. Um, so, so we did marry in the Salt Lake Temple in 1966. And the next year, we published... Gerald published Beginnings. He, it was a, an, a, an amazing story there that happened. And that just changed everything. And he was very, very supportive of you. He was oh, the yes. biggest supporter of Carolyn oh, Pearson there was, wasn't Absolutely. he? And probably that book never would have gotten published except for his support and his influence and his work. Is that right? Absolutely. 
No question about that. Okay, I wanted to make sure that much was clear. I would not have the writing career that I have had without Jared insisting on that first big scary step. Um, so we had we had a good marriage in so many ways, and um, we had four children. And but in the first year, Gerald uh, discovered that what he'd hoped for was not going to happen, that his inner feelings were, were never going to change in his sexual orientation. And, and then when, when it was clear and it was on the table now for both of us that, that this was still a, something that was happening, how we were going to do about it, we struggled for two years in Provo. We struggled in two years after a move to Northern California because I, I was a public figure in Utah at that time, and I thought there may be a divorce coming up here, and I do not want to act all this out in front of people who know me, people who would condemn Gerald. So uh, Gerald had had friends in Walnut Creek. We decided to move here, uh, get the lay of the land, see what we wanted to do, and so we did in... 76, and um, for two more years, we just were both of us in anguish. Gerald did not want to leave the marriage. He ultimately wa was hoping that he could have everything. And, and I knew that I could not participate in an, an open marriage like that. So anyway, we did a divorce in 78, and, re and re we remained good friends. He relocated into San Francisco, and but came out every weekend for quite a long time. And um, and he and I spoke often about the whole everything. And I remember one time he said to me, "Lost me if I could just find a man like you, I'd be in seventh heaven." No. <laughs> oh. uh, so and anyway, to shorten all this. Uh, six years after we separated, he, he died of AIDS. And Carolyn, if you couldn't tell, that was a painful laugh that I was giving there. Oh, of course. Of course. And uh, this was in the, the, still in the first stages of the AIDS epidemic. I remember it. And uh, Gerald had been ill for a while, but we didn't have any idea that this was going on, but it was. And anyway, once he was diagnosed, he went downhill very rapidly. And um, at, at the end, I, I, I did bring him to, to my home here in Walnut Creek where I was taking care of him. <clears throat> and so the death happened. And it, and of course it was a, a tremendously tragic thing for our children who loved him dearly and and for me and i I loved gerald as a as a friend um, but i I had never considered writing anything about it Gerald and I had never had a conversation that maybe someday I should write our story. It never came up, which is very strange, though Gerald did say a number of times. Blossom, I know 
that you're being set up to do something more than write sweet little poems. I, I, and I'm so sorry that what we're going through now is so hard for you, but I know you and I agreed to do this. On, on some level, we have made an agreement to do this, and I'm, I'm just so sorry it's so, so hard for you. And it was hard for him too. But anyway, a few weeks after his death, the thought first occurred to me, what if I wrote our story? And that was just a tremendously frightening thought. But here we were in this terrible time where young men were dying on the streets of San Francisco and, and elsewhere, having been thrown away by their families, thrown away by their churches. And I thought, um, Gerald and I did learn a lot through our time together. And if I could, if I could find a way to, to write our story, it might be useful to a lot of people. And so um, it happened rather quickly that I, I was able to... <clears throat> to find an agent who sold the story to Random House. And it took a couple of years to get the book out. And when it was out, uh, I, was, I was just terrified. I, I had no idea what was going to happen there. And, and I remember when, when my editor at Random House, or the publicist perhaps, called and said, <laughs> Uh, a book company in Utah called Desert Book has asked for an advanced copy. We'll be sending that. And I remember I was just frozen with, with terror. I, I th I'm, I'm not ready for this. I don't know what, what's going to happen. And, and then a couple of weeks later, she called back and said, Desert Book has ordered 1,000 copies of the book. And they're asking if you would do some um, some book signings at at their store in Salt Lake and a store in Orem, and I remember when she said that I just burst into tears. And and the fact of the matter was that I received so little backlash about that. I mean, this was really like the first thing to be written in the church that showed the phenomenon of homosexuality in a compassionate light. And I remember first going into the bookstore signing um, in Salt Lake, and the, by the time I got there, there was a long, long line, and people were just quiet, like it was they were being reverent. And, and as, as I signed books for people, it, it was, there was something so unusual about it, and people would... And it thought they would never in their lifetime be able to see a, a book that addressed what, the, what they were feeling, what they were experiencing, what they had gone through. And uh, Random House sent me on an eight-city tour. I was on Oprah. I was on Good Morning America. And, and so it, it turned out to be a remarkably positive thing for the church, there were a couple of bookstores that refused to, to, to carry my books any further. But, but most of the response that I got from Mormon people and, and non-Mormon people, 
was highly positive. And, 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 and I know that right away that book started to save lives. I've, I've heard from people who tell me this all the time. So, so that, um, that led me to spend a lot of time with, with people, learning a lot about uh, all the LGBTQ dynamics and pain and, and led me to do the subsequent book years, many years later, No More Goodbyes, when the, the, all those problems were still evident, still taking people's lives and then the, the stage play, Facing East, the story of a Mormon couple dealing with their gay son. Excuse me, dealing, a Mormon couple dealing with the suicide of their gay son. And the play takes place at the, at the uh, graveyard. It's, very, it's deeply moving. And we sold out all our performances in, in Utah. With Ezra News, gave it the award of best play of the year tied with Hamlet at the Shakespeare Festival. <laughs> That's good company. Yeah. So uh, that is in general the story. And I know that, that the spirit of Gerald, which I, and I do believe that we exist after we leave these bodies, not, not in the particular ways that we have been taught growing up perhaps, but I am convinced that our, our personhood, our personality, our, our essence, our, our beingness continues and continues to create, continues to learn, continues to interact, continues to have eternal relationships with everybody we have loved on the face of this earth, no matter anybody's authority that has blessed it or cursed it. So I know that, that Gerald's being has been just beyond thrilled to see what our story has accomplished. Well, he was certainly right that you were put here and put together to have you do something a lot more than write just nice, sweet love poems. Yep. I have to ask you this question, and it has to do with general conference, it has to do with the church, and it has to do specifically with the November 2015 policy of exclusion, which is what has come to be known related to labeling people in gay relationships as apostate and their children as unable to receive uh, blessings, baptisms, etc., up until they were 18 and had renounced the lifestyle of their parents. I know you're aware of that. Um, and then it's reversal in... April of 2019. It lasted for about three and a half years. It was given apparently by revelation, at least so claimed by uh, at least one church leader, and then reversed three and a half years later by revelation again. I wanted to ask you your opinion about the policy itself and its reversal. Well, it, it only requires a very short reply. Um, I, I, I believe that whole thing was very awkwardly rolled out. It was very awkwardly rolled back. And I did not at any point see God's fingerprints on it. And I would say that like polygamy, I believe it was an error all the way around. Just an error. The end. Fair enough. Now we've got about 10 minutes or so left, but I do want to get 
to your new book. By the way, I also want you to tell our listeners how they can order your, your book that's published, the children's book, sure. uh, Walk With You, and then tell us about the new book that is not yet published, which I think is a collection of poems related to, is it Heavenly Mother? Yes, yes. So um, one can uh, get I'll Walk With You from Amazon if you want free shipping and uh, if you want to get it fast. If you would like to get a signed copy from me autographed to whomever you would like, and also you'd have to pay shipping, sorry, uh, go to my website, carolynpearson.com, and you'll see the book on the front page there. And you can order friend, you can order copies for all your children, your grandchildren, your friends, yourself, whatever. So um, that's how you can can get. Uh, I'll walk with you. And if you want to help me a little bit, do it that way. Come through my my website. Okay, everybody, go through Carolyn's website. No Amazon for my listeners. <laughs> okay. All right, now, and tell us about the new book. Oh, my gosh. This one is, well, I, I think I would say the most radical book I've ever written. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. The title is Finding Mother God, and the subtitle is Poems to Heal the World. And this is not a little... A, a sweet little tribute to our hidden veil the heavenly mother that she's the one that made the butterflies this is this is very heavy duty stuff oh here let me find one mm. while you're looking i will tell you i've sometimes wondered if heavenly mother is more like uh uh, Mrs. Brady on the Brady Bunch, or is she more like Artemis in Greek mythology? She's everything. Everything. Okay, okay. Here, here's a, a very short one. Um, to our mother. Remembering that Jesus named his father from the cross and said, Abba, Abba, why hast thou forsaken me? And remembering, too, that on the kibbutz, I learned that even today, children speaking Hebrew call their father Abba and their mother Ima. I am amazed to find in my balancing hands two balancing words. And the first speaking of the new word is this, Ima, Ima, why have we forsaken thee? Wow. That's powerful, Carolyn. Thank you. Okay, here's one. It's a, it's a bit longer, but it... All right, here we go. This gives some good history, some good context of where we, where we are. Message from Mother. Appreciation to mythologist Joseph Campbell. For all those little gifts you gave to the mythologists and archaeologists to give to me, I thank you, Mother. For that precious big-bellied figurine pressed by Paleolithic hands and the magical naked outline of you on the walls of caves, I thank you. 
I thought I was a motherless child in an always motherless house. And then your little surprises began to come, as did my tears, my grateful tears, for there was your soft and ancient voice. I am here. I am female. I am divine. Thank you for the word mother spoken centuries before the word father. For blood and baby do not lie, but testify that mother was the first thing, the power that carried and birthed the universe and all in it, the sea, the earth, the animals, the upright ones, the men and women who lived in peace within her safe cycle and gathered food to the easy sound of wind and rain. I am here. I am female. I am divine. I thank you, Mother, for brooding over your people when the dark times came, when the invaders came, the Indo-Europeans from the north and the Semites from the desert, turning the birthing upside down. So Athena was born of the forehead of Zeus, and so Eve was born of the rib of Adam. Their gods were male, and their swords were bronze, and they named you abomination, and butchered, and buried you, without knowing they were planting you. For you are the transformer who turns the seed into a tree, the tree of life who is sturdy and many and grew in all places, the goddess of many names that I read now on pages made from the tree that speak for the tree. I am here. I am female. I am divine. Athena, Ceres, Caridwen, Demeter, Hathor, Inanna, Isis, Kali, Ma'at, Venus, hundreds more, shining black or ivory or red, and each a name that points to mother. The past does what the past is, and it is gone. Men are still warriors, but not all. For many understand that our very being turns now on our turning to our mother, who is ready to correct our view of heaven so that God herself and God himself, who were always one, can join on earth to bless the confused billions. The next step is ours daughters of our mother. And did we ever think she would not uphold us in our essential mission? We thank you, mother, as now we rise, the women with microphones in the halls of government, the halls of justice, of media, of religion, the women penning books and scribbling poems, the women helping women buy a goat or a sewing machine, the women marching with signs and songs. There is power in our words, and our words are these. We are here. We are female. 
We are divine. Thank you so much for reading that to us, Carolyn. I can see why it is you're saying that she's everything. Yeah. And, and I have just uh, finished making a recording of all of these poems so that it will be available as an audiobook as what? well. Wonderful. When, when will this book be available? Mid-August. And you know what's happening mid-August as well? What? And on August 18th. Quick, listeners, what are we going to commemorate on August 18th? We August will celebrate 18th. the 100th anniversary of female suffrage in the United States of America. Wow, does that mean the passing of the amendment? Yes, the 19th Amendment. Great. So that was 1920, I'm guessing, August 18th? Yeah. 1920. Yes, 1920. Isn't that amazing? Yes, it is. Okay, here, here's a tiny poem. Okay, we'll close with this one. This is, this is a little lighthearted one, but you will get it. Okay. Common sense. I may not be the sharpest knife in the chandelier or the brightest bulb in the drawer, but seeing the creatures out in the zoo and the creatures up in the blue and the creatures on Fifth Avenue, who are pretty equally girl and guy, I will not buy the Brooklyn Bridge, nor will I buy a story that says the creator of all the creatures, including me, was one or two or three male beings Never mind how potent their omnipotence might be. Wonderful. I love it. I love it. I know my listeners love it too. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for being on Radio Free Mormon today. This has been an absolute joy for me. Hey, I have enjoyed it. And I can't tell you how I've enjoyed writing these new poems. So perhaps we'll have to speak again, dear brother, Radio Free Mormon. I hope so. And I hope that perhaps this is the first time in your life that you have had your own song sung back to you in Japanese. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure it will never happen again until I meet all my Japanese friends on the other side. <laughs> and I'm sure you've got a lot of them there, as well as in every country on the earth. Hey, many blessings to all of us. I hereby, with all the authority I do not have, except we all have authority, to bless everybody that we meet. And I want to bless all the good listeners here that, you know, whatever, you, whatever you're working out in your own spiritual lives, may you... Listen to the inside voice, the one that, that continues to feel more like what God must be like. And let us just try our best to walk with each other, knowing that our, our differences are so minor compared to things that we share. And may we be part of... Of, of bringing peace to all the quarters of the, the vast diaspora of Mormondom 
and and the the vaster human family throughout the world. Peace is our goal, and may it be so. Thank you again so much for that blessing, Carol Lynn. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Show my love